Well, good morning, Northside. It is so good to be with you. Such an honor to be with you today. I love this church. I first discovered Northside back during my time at Lincoln Christian University, getting to know guys like Andy and Kyle and others who were living in the dorm. And uh, man, I've just appreciated the kingdom impact that this church has made here in this community and all over the world. You guys have such a great legacy. You're such a, just a standout church. And your staff is fantastic. I've known Jim for a long time back when we were both groups pastors back in Illinois. So it's just an honor to be with you. You guys are doing a great job and you should celebrate that. I mean, baptisms are happening. That's one of the, the things, like the healthiest sign of a healthy church is that people are surrendering to Jesus and getting baptized. And you guys are having tons of that this weekend. So we should celebrate that together, right? That's a good, good thing. Well, you know, life is filled with questions, right? All kinds of questions come at us. Uh, if you've got little kids, you know, you got the question like, why is the sky blue? If you travel with those little kids, you undoubtedly have the question, are we there yet? Any parents in the room, you've dealt with that. If you are dating somebody, you've been with somebody for a while, and it's one of those things where you're going out to eat, you undoubtedly face the question, where are we going to have lunch today? Like for some of you, that struggle is real. You're already thinking about that for later today. Like, where are we gonna go after church? Where are we gonna go eat? Which restaurant, which one? And if you're married to somebody indecisive, just be patient. <laughs> some questions are a bit more perplexing. Like why do we drive on a parkway and why do we park on a driveway? Why do our feet smell and our nose runs? I feel for anyone trying to learn the English language. Like we're a mess here, right? Some questions a little more perplexing. Like did Noah have woodpeckers on the ark? If he did, what did he do with them? Where did he put them? Like how do you cage those things up? Some questions have much greater significance. When I was in college, I was at a campus ministry event. And I was with my buddies and I look across the room, I see this cute blonde and I look at my buddies and I'm like, who is that girl? What is her name? And then I discovered her name was Jen and things went really well with Jen. 23 years later, she's my wife. We've got three kids, a grandbaby. I mean, it's awesome. But there was another big question along the way because eventually I got to ask her, will you marry me? Like, will you downgrade your life to hang out with me? But you know, before I asked that question, her dad had all kinds of questions for this joker, right? Like dad's in the room, you know there are some questions you're gonna be asking. Well, Jesus knew the power of a well-placed, well-timed question. All the time, Jesus was asking questions. And it wasn't because he did not know the answers to them, but it was because he knew we need to wrestle through those questions that we need to arrive at those answers for ourselves. And today, we're going to look at three of the most important questions Jesus ever Asked. And we're picking it up in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew was a friend and follower of Jesus. That's what a disciple was. Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher. And so his disciples were students who chose to follow him and sit under his teaching. And Matthew was one of those guys who later in life wrote an account of Jesus' life. We call that the gospel. And so the gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, if you're newer to the Bible, that's all that means. And so we're picking it up in Matthew's gospel chapter 16. And Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? 
And the Son of Man was an Old Testament title that Jesus had adopted for himself. Well, they replied, some say John the baptizer, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So question number one, who do people say I am? Jesus throws this question to his boys. It's like, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? Who do they think I am? And that question is as relevant today as it was then. Who do people say Jesus is? Now, most of the time, people treat Jesus with a lot of respect. Every once in a while, you got somebody who they throw some shade at Jesus. They're taking cheap shots. They want to, you know, try and get us to believe he was somebody that he wasn't. And they're pretty nasty to him. But most people in most cultures around the world, when they hear of Jesus, even if they don't follow him, they have respect for him. They treat him with respect. Even people who don't like organized religion, you might run into somebody who says, well, I'm not real big on the church, but I like that Jesus guy. And if we were to go out on the street and just start asking people, you know, who do you think Jesus is? You're probably going to hear some responses like, oh, he was a good person. He was a good moral teacher. He was a really kind guy. You might have some people say, oh, he was a rebel. He was a radical revolutionary. You'll have fewer people who probably say, oh, he was God. He's the son of God. He's savior. But this question, who do people say I am? That's a that's a big question, and we need to be aware of that because all the time in our culture, people are wanting to reform Jesus in their image. They're wanting to come up with an idea of a Jesus that's safe for them, a Jesus that they can be okay with, a Jesus that allows them to continue to do what they do or to live as they live or to be about their cause. We want to form Jesus to the cause that's most important to us. But the reality is we don't get to redefine or recreate Jesus just because how we answer that question, listen, Jesus is who he is, regardless of how we answer that question, regardless of how anybody else says about him, he is who he is. Jesus is asking this question to get us to wrestle with whether we will acknowledge who he is. And that's exactly where he turns it next. He looks at his disciples, he asks the granddaddy question of them all, the million dollar question, he, he puts it back on them. He says, all right, so you got all these other people saying these things about me, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And church, that's the question for us today. That that is the most important question you will ever answer in your life. And the reason is because your eternity hangs on your response to that question. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, Simon Peter, one of Jesus' followers, answered the question. Simon was a bit impulsive. He jumps right in. He's like, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. It's a good response, Pete. Like, you get it right. But this word Christ gets kind of lost in translation for us a lot of times. I think a lot of times in our culture, we hear Jesus as Jesus Christ, like Christ is his last name. But Christ is not a name, it's a title. In the Greco-Roman world where Jesus and his followers lived 2,000 years ago, Christ was most often used for political leaders. If you remember where we began this passage, it says they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And in Caesarea Philippi, you had a guy named Philip who was a king who built 
this political monument, this capital, if you will, up on a hill in Caesarea Philippi. That's how it got its name. And he dedicated the capital to himself as King Philip, but also to Caesar, who was emperor of the empire. So you had the Caesar, who's the emperor, and then the Caesars would have kings they would put over different areas, kind of like we have governors and president. But this was a thing dedicated to them. And these kings and these Caesars, these emperors, they would use this title Christ for themselves. What it meant was, I'm the king who's been appointed by God. It was a way to elevate themselves above everyone else, for them to put themselves beyond just the ordinary people, for them to say, God has chosen me and appointed me and put me in this place to rule you. Bow before me, I am your king. I mean, these guys would fit right in in D.C., wouldn't they? <laughs> like, they, they, they would just be right at home there. So we would be more accurate to say Jesus the Christ because that's this title. And what is happening here is they're saying, all these people saying they're kings. And when Peter says, no, 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 Jesus, you are the Christ. That's a bold proclamation. Because if you were to ascribe Christ's status, kingly status to anyone except the Caesar, the emperor, that puts you at odds with the emperor. That gets you in trouble with the empire. That could land you in jail. Worse, that could put you in the morgue. And so this is a bold statement for old Petey to make. But he says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the one above all these counterfeit kings. This is a kingly statement. This is a crowning moment for Jesus. Jesus, you are the king above all the counterfeit kings of this world. And we follow you. I mean, this is a big deal. This declaration of power, of authority for Jesus. Throughout the Bible, one of the titles that God claims for himself most often is king. In the Hebrew language of the Old Testament and in the Greek language in the New Testament, it shows up a little differently at times. This, you don't see king all the time, but it's a kingly status from beginning to end. God claims the title of king over his creation, over his kingdom. In fact, Matthew's gospel is all about Jesus as the king ushering in a whole new kingdom that transcends all the other kingdoms of this world. The, the gospel is all about the kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of God is here at hand. Repent and be part of that kingdom. Enter in, but make no mistake, Jesus is king over that kingdom. So this is all wrapped up in that short statement Peter makes, you're the Christ. And Jesus replies to him, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. And now I say that you are Peter, which means rock. Time out here. Listen, if your buddy's going to give you a nickname... Rock ain't a bad name to get, right? You know, Pete in that moment is looking at all the other disciples like, yeah, I'm rock. You know, it does a little, I can't do the eye thing like Dwayne Johnson. But you know, you know, Pete's like twitching the eye. He's flexing the muscles. He's like, I'm the rock. What name did Jesus give you? Yeah, man, I'm the guy. A little, little chest thump in there in this moment. And Jesus continues on. He says, upon this rock, I'm gonna build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. All the gates of hell can't withstand this. Now, when Jesus makes that statement, 
that the powers of hell won't conquer his church. He's standing in a place by what people believed to be the gate of hell. Kind of like Clark Griswold when everything goes awry at his Christmas party, right? He looks at his wife. But here, here's Jesus and the boys at Caesarea Philippi. You've got this kingly palace up on the hill, but down at the bottom, there's a cave. I think we got a picture of it up there. It's not the pretty one carved on the right, but the jagged one on the left. This is the cave. And I mean, it even looks like it's got these horns on it, right? Like this evil looking little cave. I mean, it's a scary place. And they believed that cave was the gateway to Hades, to hell. Because inside of that cave is this well of water that's so deep they could not even measure it at that time. And they believed that well, that water plunged all the way to the underworld, all the way to Hades, all the way to the pits of hell. And that that was the, the thoroughfare, the channel through which all the devils would enter into our world, the devils and demon forces. I mean, this is not the place that you take your buddies on a field trip, right? It's not like the, the boys following Jesus said, hey, mom, we're going up to Caesarea Philippi. We're going to go visit the gates of hell. Like that's, but that's where Jesus has taken them. And he makes this bold statement that those gates will not withstand his kingdom, that he's doing something even more powerful. In fact, it was in that cave that the Greek god Pan was believed to have been born. I think we got a picture of Pan as well. He's kind of a goofy looking, part goat, part man. He plays the flute. I don't know that that looks as terrifying, but old goat boy God Pan there, from his name we get our word panic. He's the God who initiates terror and chaos and fear. And he's the only one of the Greek gods of that group that ever died. And so here, when Peter has said, you're the son of the living God, Pete is throwing shade at Pan. They're at the gates of Hades is what believed to be there. And Jesus is saying, those gates will not withstand my church, my kingdom. We will prevail against all the devils of fear and chaos and panic in this world. Well, Jesus continues to go on, he begins telling his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of all the religious leaders there. Jerusalem is like the religious center point for them. And then he tells them, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. But don't worry, because after three days, I'm, I'm coming back from the grave. Well, at that point, Peter takes him aside and begins to reprimand him. That's a bold move to reprimand Jesus. Let's just say that. Like a lot of people you might reprimand. Jesus probably does not rank very highly on that list. But he begins to reprimand Jesus for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he says, that will never happen to you. Not on my watch. Because Peter is trying to make sense of what Jesus has said. Peter is just claiming, Jesus, you are the king. Yeah, let's go back to Jerusalem but not for a cross, for the crown. Like, you're not gonna die. You're the king. He still has like earthly kingdom in mind. Like, they need to put a crown on you, put a throne under you. Like, that's what we're going to Jerusalem for. Death, that's not part of the picture. It just doesn't make sense to Peter. It doesn't make sense to the other disciples. They're, they're trying to wrap their heads around what Jesus is saying. Like, no, no, we just like crowned you as king and you're saying you're gonna die? That's not how this works. And at that point, Peter gets reprimanded by Jesus. Jesus says to him, he says, Pete, you're a dangerous trap to me. So get away from me, 
Satan. So let's sink for a moment. Like two seconds earlier, Pete's doing the whole chest stump and chest puff and like, I'm the rock. And now Jesus is like, no, now you're the devil. <laughs> it's not a good moment for Peter. Jesus looks at him and is like, Pete, listen, you are so focused on the things of this world that you can't see the things of God. You're seeing merely from a human point of view, not from God's point of view. So easy to get stuck there, isn't it, church? It's so hard when we're facing the challenges of this world, when things have gone different than we expect and disappointment sets in, whether it's with a relationship or it's with a career or it's with a, you know, a friend or you know, it's with our money or with our health or whatever it might be. When the bad days happen, it's hard to look from God's perspective and say, okay, God, I trust. I trust you got this. You're up to something beyond what I can see. But that's exactly what we need to do. Get our eyes off of our perspective. Trust God and say, God, help me see what you're up to in this. At least help me be faithful even if I don't understand it. See, our king is a rescuing king. And he comes to fight for us. But he doesn't fight with a sword, he fights with a cross. And that's so hard for his friends to understand in that moment. That he's rescuing through a cross. He says, I know this isn't comfortable, but this is the way it's gotta be. Because I'm gonna be crucified, but I'll come back to life. In that crucifixion, I'm gonna take all your sin, I'm gonna take all the powers of hell that are coming at us, I'm, I'm gonna bury all that in the grave. And with power and with goodness, I'm coming back to defeat it. So he shares this with them and then he goes on and says, if anyone wants to be my follower, don't you love the gentleness of Jesus? He doesn't force it upon them. He doesn't bully them. He doesn't just try to persuade them. He just says, listen, if you want to follow me, there's a standing invitation. But for you to grab that invitation, for you to unwrap the gift that I give you, here's what that looks like. If you wanna be my follower, you gotta give up your own way you have to take up your own cross and follow me. I mean, think about this. Jesus just told them that he's going to die, that he's got to take up a cross. And now he says, by the way, you're going to take a cross too. And friends, let's get clear. What's true for them is true for us. This is our invitation to follow, is to come and die. It's to come and die. It says, if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? The third of the great questions in this trifecta. Who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And what is worth more than life with me? Friend, what do you gain if you win this world, but you lose your soul? I don't know if you're anything like me, but in case you are, I, I, I get it. Like, I wrestle with some of those big ticket items that tempt me to trade my soul. Sometimes not even trade my soul, but things that will just kill my soul, will, will rot my soul, will, will make it wither. Things like money. And like, there, there are those days where I'm like, man, what must life be like? If you have all the money of Bill Gates, and I get it, he doesn't have as much as he once did. 
little relational trouble there, but dude's still filthy rich, man. Like, if you get all the money of Bill Gates, like, this just got to, like, if, if I could just have the athleticism of Patrick Mahomes, though I'm a Bears fan, so I'm hoping that athleticism does not show up in the game today, but come on, God, please. Yeah, wishful thinking there. Doesn't look like God's a Bears fan. I'm just going to say that. So, <laughs> but if I had all the athleticism of Patrick Mahomes, like, wouldn't that be great? Maybe if I had the perpetual youthfulness of Tom Cruise. That dude's like 60. How does he stay so young? Like, the dude's a freak, right? I mean, let's just. If I could have all the fame of Hollywood, if I could have all the power of the politicians and the power brokers of this world. But, but let's get honest, man. Most days, uh, shoot, I would just settle for like, God, if I could just have a good day. Like, if nothing goes wrong, and if you just stack those all the way until I die. Like, that'd be really great. Like, just never a bad day again. Just good day after good day. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like, if the genie could come out of the bottle and grant us that, but how long is it going to last? Do we, we get all these good days. We get all these things. We stack them all up. Man, if we have all of that, if we just have one of those things, there comes a day when it doesn't matter anymore. There comes a day when you cross from this life into the next. And the barrier, the threshold between the two says that whatever you've done and accumulated here, most of those possessions, on those possessions you don't take with you. The only thing you take with you is love and the impact you've had on the people around you. Like there comes a time when all the, all the toys get boxed up and put back and you're in a box and nothing goes with you there. And this is the radical counterintuitive thing that what Jesus says, because Jesus offers us all those things in fact, more than, it's just delayed. Jesus said, you want all that. Listen, I've got a paradise that awaits you. I've got this resurrection life that's for you. A life without pain or shame, a life without hurt or tragedy or tears, no complications of getting older or sick or sore, no cancer, no breakups, no bullies, no anxiety, no financial woes, no job woes. Just peace at its perfection and joy amplified forever. But make no mistake, at the center of that paradise is a throne, and on that throne sits King Jesus. And Jesus' declaration to his friends, to his followers, is if you want to inherit all of that, if you want my kingdom then and there, you've got to allow me to be king of your life here and now. If Jesus is not king of your life here, you don't get the kingdom benefit there. Now, I think most of us want that resurrection life. We, we want that resurrection life now. I mean, sure, like, God, would you resurrect my finances? Would you resurrect my marriage and the brokenness? Would you resurrect this brokenness with my kids and my friends and resurrect the job? God, would you resurrect some help? Would you just breathe new life into these areas of my life? Would you breathe some fullness into this? I need it. We want the resurrection. We just aren't too amped up on the crucifixion that Jesus has goes along with it, that precedes it. God, give me new life. Just don't ask me to die. I, I like how... Eugene Peterson says it in his message paraphrase of the Bible, verse 24. He says, then Jesus went to work on his disciples. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let 
me lead. You are not in the driver's seat. I am. Driver's seat. Now, I've got a pretty healthy marriage. I would even go so far as to say I have a thriving marriage. I, I married a fantastic woman, and she puts up with a lot, so our marriage thrives. But if you were to join us in the car in certain traffic conditions, you may think me a liar on that statement. Because <laughs> inevitably, in certain driving conditions, which we find ourselves in a lot of times in Louisville, there is one who's holding the wheel, steering the car, but there's another one in the passenger seat who offers tremendous commentary and insight into that driving. And, and especially, it's, it's just all the better when the teenagers from the back seat are providing their own commentary of how we should be doing what we're doing. And now listen, in the Fitz home, that always is received with grace and appreciation and like a deep gratitude. Thank you for that information. I was not aware. If only, if only. Friends, how annoying, how frustrating it must be for God when we're trying to grab at the wheel from the passenger seat. Like how frustrating it must be for him when we're trying to boot him from the seat. Like, geez, you just get in the back seat. I, I got this one. Like, if Jesus is going to lead, if Jesus is going to be king, Jesus gets the driver's seat. I, I tell my kids to be careful. They're teenagers and so sometimes they ride places with their friends. I say, anytime you get in a vehicle with somebody else, they're in the driver's seat, you're not. You are trusting your life to that person. Some of you right now are questioning who you rode to church with today. Like, oh, wait a second. Maybe I need to drive home. <laughs> who are you letting drive your life? Where are they steering your life? The pundits of this world, the, the thinkers of this world, the, the people who are giving you all the info, all the insight, where are they leading you? Who is driving your life? Have you allowed Jesus to take the driver's seat? Or have you just stuck him in the trunk with the spare tire? He, he's not in charge, but when life feels flat, you'll, you'll call upon him. See, if Jesus is just a spare tire kind of savior, he's really not much of a savior at all, is he? I mean, after all, like, maybe the reason that you need spare tire Jesus is because you've not let him sit in the driver's seat in the first place. Now, I get it. I do. I know that it can be challenging to let Jesus take control. I think some of you might be reluctant to let him do that because there's some things in your life that you don't want to surrender to his kingship. You kind of like wearing the crown yourself. Maybe not in every area, but there are some that you're like, I, I'll give you most, but I, I kind of want to hold on to this. You, you, maybe you're afraid of what Jesus is going to ask you to give up, or maybe you're afraid of what he's going to ask you to step into, what he might want to do to change things up. Maybe it's a relationship or how you handle your money or how you handle your, your private life or any number of things. And maybe maybe the, the problem for some of you is that you've got this idea that God is angry with you, that the God is somehow against you. Maybe that God is disappointed in you. So hear me real clear on this. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the Jesus of the gospels. I've got three kids 
And great kids, but they all, they're human, so they, they mess up at times. And when that happens, my wife and I look at them and, and we make sure they hear this from us. Like, look me in the eye, get this. I'm not disappointed in you. I'm disappointed for you because I know your hopes, your dreams, your desires. And I know that if you could rewrite this part of your story, if you could rewrite this chapter, you're going to write it a different way. I know that this was a mistake. And so I'm disappointed for you that this, this is out of alignment with who you are. I'm not disappointed in you. We have this fourfold saying in the Fitz house. When one of us messes up, whether it's one of the kids or it's my wife or myself, rarely is it Jen, more often it's me. We have this saying, we just look at each other and we say, hey, here, you need to know this. I'm for you. So whatever I'm offering as a suggestion from this point forward is because I want what is best for you. And that means I'm going to be here for you. Like, I'm not walking away. This doesn't change it. I'm not out. I'm not tapping out. I'm in this with you because I love you. And nothing you do is going to change that. And so together, we're going to get through this. This fourfold statement, I'm for you, I'm here for you, I love you, together we will get through this. We didn't come up with that. Friends, that's the gospel, that's Jesus, that's the cross. That's what God speaks over you. He is not against you. He's for you. And the cross makes that abundantly clear that the God who leaves the glory and the beauty, the throne and the kingdom of heaven to step into the muck and the mire of this world, to climb up on a splintery cross and die for you, to take away your sin, to take away your guilt so that you might accept his invitation into brand new life. The God who does that for you is not a God who is against you. He's a God who's for you. And he loves you. Our God is a rescuer. He's a rescuing king. He does not fight with a sword. He fights with a cross. And he wins the battle every time. Remember what they tacked above him, the title they gave him when he hung on the cross, king of the Jews. They put it there to mock him. Problem was, they just didn't make that title big enough. Certainly he is king of the Jews, but he is way more than that. He is king of all creation, king of the universe, king of all eternity and all history, king of all kingdoms forever. His kingdom transcends them all. Do you remember the crown they put upon his head? Not gold and jeweled crown like this but the crown of thorns they thrust upon, tearing his flesh, bringing the blood and the pain. See, the king who deserves the golden crown was willing to take the thorny crown. Why? Because he loves you and he will do everything necessary to wipe away your sin, to restore relationship. We are the ones in rebellion. We're the ones staging the coup against the king and yet he does everything necessary to bring us back into right relationship with him to make it good for us because his kingly role in our lives, it's what's best for us. That's the kind of king we serve. And when you surrender to Jesus as king, when you follow him as king, he doesn't just give you 
a place in his kingdom. He gives you a place in his life. He invites you into the family, adopts you. you. You are now a son and daughter of the king. Your princes and princesses made royalty with him, right? I mean, this is like Cinderella's slipper perfectly fitting on us, right? This is this beautiful moment. And, and so the king prepares a place. Right now, Jesus is setting the table for a feast in glory for you. Uh, scripture ends with this picture of a feast in heaven, this wedding banquet that we share in the feast. And Jesus is right now setting the table with your place mark, like Granny at Thanksgiving writes the names of everybody in Johnny sits here and Andy sits there and Becca sits there. And like he has got your name on this beautiful placard, your seat is saved for you at that table. He's got a place for you in the palace of the king. And it's not like when you check into a real ritzy hotel and like, Mr. Johansson, we are so glad you're here. No, no, no. Like you got a placard on the door. It's permanent. You have a place in the palace. But way more than your seat at the table or your place in the palace is the place you have just for you in the heart of God. Because he's a really good dad who loves you and desires eternity with you. So he extends the invitation but it's up to you. He just says, if you want to follow, the choice is yours. He won't force it, but the choice is yours. So friend, I don't know who you say Jesus is, but that's the question before us today. Who do you say Jesus is? And I just wanna invite you, if you say he's king, if you say he's rescuer, if you say he's leader in your life, then let's declare that. Let's state that together. So I'm gonna do something a little different, maybe a little bold, but I'm gonna invite all of you who claim Jesus as king to go ahead and stand in this moment. And together, we're gonna to declare this. I'm gonna invite you to repeat after me Peter's confession. And let's say this with spirit. So repeat after me, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is my leader. He's my rescuer. He's my king. And the whole church said, amen. And you can have a seat. But I know you could hear that where you were. I wish you could stand where I am to hear that, what a powerful proclamation of God's people declaring allegiance to him. Friend, if that was your first time declaring Jesus as king in your life, then your next step is to be baptized just like we saw others do earlier. To, to go to the water, listen, the water is still wet, it's still warm and they've taken care of all the details, they have everything for you. You need not worry about any of that. There will be someone flanking the stage on each side if you're ready to declare in your life that Jesus is king. As we stand and sing this next song, I want you to make your way there. Because here's all it takes for you to be ready for baptism. If you know that you need Jesus to lead you and you know that you need him to rescue you, then you're ready, you're ready. And it doesn't matter how old you might be. It doesn't matter how far from God you may have wandered. It doesn't matter your religious background. A few years back, not long before my mom passed, I got to have a really beautiful conversation with her. My mom grew up in the church. Her parents christened her in a Methodist church when she was little. And then as an adult, my mom wandered for years and wandered pretty far in some of those years. 
And then I had the privilege of the church I was pastoring in Illinois. She, she'd come back and she was coming to church. We had this conversation about baptism and she said, I, I really wanna do that, but I, I'm afraid I'm going against the wishes of my parents. I said, my mom, mom, who made the decision when you were an infant? Did you? She said, no, 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 that was Mimi and Popo, my, my grandparents. And what was their decision for you to walk with Jesus? Yeah. She said, but I've wandered too far and I've, I've done too much. And, and, I, and look at me, I'm, too, I'm almost 80. And I'm like, mom, like the invitation has an expiration date? So listen, no matter how far you've gone, God has gone with you. He's chased after you. You may have thought you were a million miles away. Turn around, he's right there chasing after you. He's always just one step right there. All these years, it's what he's been doing. That's why we're having this conversation, mama. And that decision that your parents made, you're not going against them. Listen, this is you 70-some years later declaring that you have made good on their prayer that day. What they had decided for you in that moment as an infant, you are now claiming and as an adult, yes, I am making good on what you've prayed for me. So friend, I don't know where you are. I don't know your religious background. I don't know how far you've wandered or what you've done, but I know this that if God has put it on your heart today, today is your day, don't wait, don't wait. So I'm gonna pray for us and I invite you to stand as we pray. We're gonna continue to stand as we sing. And if you have a decision to make today to announce Jesus as king of your life, then during this time, you make your way down beside the platform. God, we thank you that you are the reigning king, not just of eternity and not just of creation, but of us, that you have invited us into your kingdom. You have adopted us in as sons and daughters, princes and princesses of the most high king who reigns forever in glory. We gotta thank you that you're patient with us, that you're gentle with us, that you invite us to follow. And so God, in this moment, I pray that all of us who have claimed you as king of our lives, every one of us can probably identify some areas where we've, We've tried to steal back that crown from you. God, help us to surrender to you with courage and with confidence that you are good and you are kind. God, help us to surrender those areas to you once again and maybe for the first time ever. And God, for those here today who have never before surrendered to you, God, we pray that today will be the defining moment in their life that they will answer that question of who they say you are by saying you are their rescuer, their leader, their king and that we as your people will celebrate with them. God, we pray this for your glory and yours alone. Amen.